The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Russell Matthews. I want to welcome you to the forum today. We're uh, starting off a new series with Ian Powell as our speaker, and it's looking at the whole idea of all we need is love. And uh, today's topic is loving the enemy. You can't be serious. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to be able to see kind of what um, Ian's going to share with us today. We're just to kind of explain to you briefly what you should expect today if it's your first time coming along. Is that we're I'm going to read a portion of the Bible that you'll find on the inside of your outline, and then Ian's going to come up and give a talk for about 15, 20 minutes, and then. Right after that, um, you are going to be able to ask him questions, and you can do that either through SMS, which I'll have an SMS number that you can send up on the screen, or you can write it down on the small sheet of paper that's on the inside of your outline, or if you're brave enough, and if we have time, we'll just hand you the microphone, you can ask Ian directly. And uh, our goal is to be done by about 10 to the hour, so we make sure we get you back to the office on time. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read a portion of the Bible. If you want to open up um, your outline, I'm going to start at the sentence mark number 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Ian. You can't be serious. That's, a, that's the question really about this loving your enemy. Uh, you may remember the, the famous American, one of the many great American contributions to human civilization, a tennis player who's gone on to be quite a wonderful commentator who when he was losing, and there was quite a careful study done on this, he would begin these rants that would often include <laughs> to the umpire, you can't be serious. And, um, and when it comes to this question, love your enemies. Got the picture in your mind of someone who's an enemy, someone who's not just a bit irritating, but is a positively hostile, damaging force in your life. And Jesus suggests that you love that person. And I want to suggest whether or not you think of yourself as a Christian or a vague respecter of Jesus, most of us, at some part of our heart and mind at some time ago, you can't be serious. That person going to waste the love and the energy on caring for them when they clearly deserve the opposite. And yet this is the first bit of, as it were, moral or ethical teaching Jesus gives in the whole of Luke's Gospel, in Luke 6, 27. The first thing he, when he actually stops and says, okay... I want to tell you how I want you to live. There have been a few times he's invited people to himself to come and recognize him as their king and master and the new center of their life. 
But when he actually begins to articulate, and this is what it's going to look like, first ridiculous thing he says is love the enemy. Now, as you can see there, there's a few points, far too many points for lunchtime talk, so I'm going to travel fairly fast, particularly through the first two. Um, this, this passage of the Bible is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, it, it's the sort of parallel passage to what's probably better known as the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels. And in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 5, in Matthew, he goes up onto a mountain, the disciples come round him, we hear at the end of the sermon that the crowds are there as well, and he gives what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, arguably, one of the most important, most memorable uh, speeches ever given in human history. This is specifically, we're told in Luke chapter 6, that Jesus is on a plane, he's on a low place. It's not the same event, and it's quite clearly not the same event, but the teaching is very, very similar. So some people who have no, who just haven't thought enough about what Jesus is doing think, ah, he actually did this sermon once, and there's Matthew's recording and version of it, and here's Luke's recording and version of it. No. If you're trying to start a great movement that sweeps the world as Jesus in the end does, you can't just give a sermon once some little hick town in Cana in Galilee or Nazareth or Bethlehem or even a tiny little city like Jerusalem and think, okay, that's that done. I'll never say that again. I mean, I've coached football teams. They have the same thing week after week after week. And maybe by the time they're 18, they've picked it up. It's not how humans work. So Jesus would clearly have taught this here and then gone to the next village and taught the same thing there and, and varied it and improved it and shortened it and have had a good idea on how to illustrate something and try it. Well, that didn't work. I'll try something different. That's what you do. So these sermons are a little different, but they're very similarly on the same idea. This is the Sermon on the Plain. And we're told in uh, verses 17 to 20 that um, the disciples come and the crowds come. They're a similar group, but a little bit different. The disciples are people who are committed. These are guys who, like Peter and John and the boys, have left their fishing boats. Matthew, the tax collector, left their place of work. They're walking with Jesus. They're still not all that clear on who Jesus is, but they're committed. The crowd, on the other hand, is curious. Curious and serious enough to come and listen. I imagine in this room, if we could see into your hearts, and I've got no claim to do that and no particular desire to do it, Some of us would be more like the disciples. Some would be just interested. Uh, And that's that's who's here listening to Jesus. But it's the disciples he's mainly speaking to, those really invested in Jesus and those who are just intrigued. And in both the Sermon on the Mount and in this uh, sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called, uh, before the passage that you've got printed out for you, uh, the introduction is through what's called the Beatitudes, the Blessings. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, there's eight of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. That's in Luke, he does it differently. He has four blessings and four woes or curses. So he paints for you the picture of the good life and he paints for you the picture of the painful life, the life that doesn't work. He paints for us the picture of, of the enviable life, the truly fruitful life, the good life, and the life that you should seek to avoid. But it's weird. You'll need to look it up for yourself. Because what Jesus ends up saying is, you know the people who you should avoid being, the people who you should feel sorry for? Woe to those who are rich. Woe to those who are well-fed now. Woe to those who are laughing now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And we think, what? What? He's not serious. I mean, this is the good life, isn't it? Rich, well-fed, laughing, 
and you're highly regarded. But Jesus says, if that's the core of your life, your life is a tragedy, just waiting to unfold. So you get immediately when you begin to listen to Jesus, even if you don't get what he's on about, you get he's not offering a little bit of a spiritual additive. Many people get to the point where they think, oh, I've done so much that life I thought I should do, but there's just something missing. And maybe a bit of spirituality, a bit of meditation, a bit of visit to the ashram, um, maybe visit the CPF, um, and maybe a bit of a spiritual additive. And what you discover when you hear Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain is he's not offering an additive. This is not the secret ingredient, the tenth of the eleven secret herbs and spices that go into KFC, etc. He's saying, actually, we're doing lamb, not chicken. He's saying it's a completely other thing. It's not an additive, it's an alternative. A radical alternative to life that Jesus offers in the kingdom of which he is king. Well, let's look straight at this particular challenge. Jesus says in verse 27 there, it's on the outline. But to you who are listening, which is a strange way to introduce, to talk to people, but he says, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Um, you can't be serious. This is the first thing he says. This is not, this is not for the super saints. This is not for super Christians. This is your garden variety, foundational version of what it means to learn to live with Jesus. So let's have a look at what on earth Jesus means. This is not an interesting alternative to life, an interesting additive. This is a weird alternative in this sermon. Love your enemies. Now, there's something I think we can sense how wonderful that would be if only it was possible. Um, And I remember reading a, a wonderful book that you could do worse than downloading on your Kindle or something like that called Son of Hamas without telling you the whole story, um, which I couldn't do in a few seconds anyhow. The Son of Hamas is written by a man called Yusuf Mossad Hassab. uh, Yusuf's father was the founder of Hamas. Uh, You've probably heard of the PLO, and Hamas has sort of taken over. It was originally just a a, a group set up by Palestinian Muslims to look after each other, and over a few years it became radicalised and became uh, embraced the use of violence, which wasn't what uh, Yusuf's father had in mind when he set it up. Um, and it's a, he's got a lovely family. He, he gets involved, gets radicalised as time goes on, finishes up in an Israeli prison, in Megiddo prison, where he then sees, well, what he says is he sees Islam up close, not through his, the loving eyes of his father, who's obviously a beautiful man. And he, he gets deeply troubled as he watches it working. The violence, the irrationality, um, the, the quickness to judge. And he came out of prison still deeply committed to Hamas, still deeply committed to the Palestinian cause, still deeply Islamic but troubled. And as he's walking through Jerusalem, uh, he heard a foreign voice invite him and the guy who was with Jamal to, to go to a Bible study. Now, my own hunch is if the guy who invited him knew who he was talking to, the son of the founder of Hamas recently released from prison, he probably would not have invited him to his nice little Bible study. Anyhow, he came and he was given a Bible and he read the Sermon on the Mount. And in that book, you can find him discuss what it was like when he read these words, the the same sort of words in Matthew 5 there. Love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. And as he read it, he said two things struck him. These were the most beautiful words he'd ever heard. There is nothing like it in the Quran or the Hadith. It's just nonsense to say that. There's some lovely things there, but nothing like love your enemy. Um... 
he said it was the most beautiful thing he'd heard and he realised it would be the only answer that could, there could be for his people, for the Jews and the Israel and the, the Palestinians to learn to live would be for people to learn to do this, which he'd never heard of before. And in the end, it led him to a long time of turmoil. Eventually, he, he did commit himself to Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for him and then had to flee because uh, at that point he's committed apostasy and his life is under threat and he now lives in the United States. He must be joking. Serious, yes. Well, let's have a look at what it is. What's he, what's he mean? It's fairly straightforward. It's, the, the puzzle here is not intellectual, theological. The trouble here is the difficulties in the doing of it. Look at what Jesus says to us. Love your enemies. What on earth does that mean? Well, the next statement will tell you. This is, this is classic Jewish way of talking and teaching. You see it all the way through the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, where you have a parallel and a development of ideas. We tend to do our poetry with rhyme. The cat sat on the mat. Um, Israeli sort of Jewish poetry does it, uh, the parallelism of ideas. So you can see it here. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. What does love mean? It means to do good. Who's the enemy? Those who hate you. And then it develops it. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And this is a, there's a sort of a, a parallelism and a progression as he goes through. So what Jesus is saying is this. The first essential, basic, ongoing command Jesus gives is about love. The Christian life, the living of it, is all about God loving us, that experience, and then learning to reflect that in our own life, a life of love. But we are particularly spoken to about love for enemy. Jesus basically says in the part that Russell read before, in the end, what, what humans speak about when they tell us how good they are often is they think, I'm a good daughter, I'm a good father, I'm a good friend. Jesus basically says in the page, so what? He says the worst sinners are good to their friends. And by sinners, he, he's using it in the way that his enemies use it. Uh, sinners was a term that the religious elite used to describe people really, 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 really bad people, like people who barrack for eastern suburbs and stuff like that, you know, like moral reprobates of the worst kind. So people who everyone go, ugh, terrible, yuck. So he's saying, he said, look, the worst sinners in the world are kind to those who are kind to them. Only complete psychopaths respond to kindness with cruelty, and there are some people who will do that. But ordinary human life in every culture, you're kind to those who are kind to you. It's a standard investment policy. That's where you put your time and affection. If someone's cruel to you, you're probably cruel to them or you ignore them. She says, that's not it. Love your enemies. How is that possible? Some people mock that. How can you have a candlelight dinner with a violin player, etc., and you know, love your, the person who you hate, the person who's oppressing you? Then Jesus spells it. It's got nothing to do with feelings at this point at all. It's explained in the next statement. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. Do good to those who hate you. Now, who do you do good to? Now, you might do good to someone who's fairly neutral, particularly if they're physically attractive in some way. I don't mean sexually, but just if they're a nice-looking person, you might be kind to them. But generally speaking, we do good to those who've done good to us, people we're in close relationship with. You might you instinctively do good to those who've got similar DNA. That's sort of built into us by God. But sometimes you can kill the people who've got similar DNA because you've lived with them long enough to realize what jerks they are. And misunderstanding builds up in family and misunderstanding leads to further misunderstanding which leads to further misunderstanding until if I'm found dead, this is no reflection on my wife, but if I'm found dead, what I've been told is that the police will assume my wife did it unless she's got a really good alibi. 
Because the person most likely to kill you, the person who you annoy the most, is the person closest to you. Ask the people who work with me. Uh, they would say that if Alison killed me, it would be justifiable homicide. There's almost no need, for a, no need for a trial. But it's the person closest to you who can often annoy you. But you are to do good to the person who hates you. See, here it's not saying you hate them. Right? It's not assuming it. But you may know they, re- they really have it out for you. And I'll bet you've had people in your life who, who seem to be your enemy. You may have them working with you. You may have them as a colleague you may well have them as one of those feral bosses that people endure sometimes who just gets in the way and makes your life difficult and blocks the clear promotion that you obviously deserve and really damages your life and has permanently damaged your life financially. I've had a number of friends who've been really, really damaged by people they've worked with or partners they've gone into business with. Um, Enemies. How should you treat them? You should do good to them. What should your approach be to them? Love them. Now, if you're not interested in what Jesus says, if you know more about life and you want to live in your own kingdom, go for your life. Because what we have in our culture, and I've noticed this, I noticed this firstly with my close friends I grew up with after I became a Christian, and I've noticed it with with, um, a lot of my Islamic friends, and I don't mean this rudely, and it's what I've, I've, you've probably heard me mention this before, but it's relevant here in particular. I think a lot of Australians, people in Australia, have an in-principle respect for Jesus, that they genuinely think they believe good things about Jesus. He's a great prophet. He's a great enlightened man. He's a great ethical teacher. He's a great moral teacher, etc., etc. Except we ignore him. And we correct him when he dares to disagree with us. I remember uh, I lived in Hurstville Grove for four years and it was a lovely place to live, lovely neighbourhood. And once, just once, I was chatting with one of these neighbours, an old bloke, um, really nice guy, which is chatting his backyard over a barbecue. And he was telling me, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God in that stuff. But he's a great ethical teacher. I said, really, like, what particular part of his teaching are you impressed with? And he mumbled something about loving each other or something, of course. And not this. And I said, so things like love your enemy, do good to those who hate you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, let him line up for another one. He said, no, that's ridiculous. And he wasn't being, he certainly wasn't being a hypocrite. But you see what he's done without meaning to. Great moral teacher. Except when he says something I don't agree with. Then he's an idiot. Right? And I want to suggest you people do this all the time. In principle respect. In practice contempt. And I think the thing is for us, for, for me not to do it. Here Jesus is saying, how should I treat people? I should love the enemy. Do good to those who hate you. How should I speak to those who curse me? It may be a stranger, you know, who misunderstands what I'm doing in the road and therefore yells and makes all sorts of rude signs and honks his horn, etc. Um, the instinctive response is to yell like, you idiot, that's not what... It's a, but, or someone abused you at work and there's terrible lot of verbal abuse can happen at work. You should see the abuse, Peter Calder. No, it's just kidding. Um, but how do you respond? Or even worse, sometimes when someone's cursing you to your face, cursing you behind you, Right? Uh, d- destroying your reputation with friends or enemies and making life really difficult. How should you use your gift of speech? Bless them. Do good to them. Don't play payback. Don't ever fight fire with fire, although it's so instinctive and so right. Or if that's right, Jesus is an idiot. When it goes even to the point beyond just words, but they actually mistreat you. They actually do things to hurt you. 
either structurally in work or life or physically, rarely, in our culture perhaps, but it still happens. What should you do for them? Pray for them. Who do you naturally pray for? People who you care about, people who you love. Yourself, probably, and then those close to you. But Jesus says, no, no, turn your hate list into your prayer list. So when you find someone mistreating you, the first thing to do instinctively, Jesus would say, is start praying for them. I had a friend um, who lived next to me at, um, at North Sydney and his sons were expelled from Shore School where I was serving as chaplain. And he was ropeably furious with the headmaster, who I personally admired and, and treated as a friend. Um, and he, he, this guy became a Christian. And he used to tell me what a bad, bad man the headmaster of Shore was. And I'm absolutely convinced he was wrong, wrong, wrong. But, um, but he said, I don't like him, but I pray for him every day. <laughs> He said, it nearly kills me. <laughs> He's mistreated my sons. And, uh, and I thought he was doing the right thing. See, we often wait until we feel it's hypocritical to do something kind. Rubbish. Right? In fact, Seligman and people like this, great psychologist studies in the area of, of um, human happiness, have shown quite clearly that if you want to change your emotional state, change your actions. So if you want to feel loving towards someone, the best way to move towards that is to start to act loving. It's, it's actually actions precede the feelings very often. Um, we can see this in all sorts of areas. That's what Jesus is saying here. He then goes on to give the golden rule. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Much more impressive than the silver rule. The silver rule is universal. Um, Greek ethicists had it. It pops up in all sorts of religions. The silver, the, the silver rule, as against the golden rule, uh, it's in um, the teaching of, not Copernicus, Confucius. It's in Confucius' writings. And it's this. Do not do to someone else what you do not want them to do to you. And that's good advice. If you can live by that, you'll be doing okay. But the golden rule is a, is a step far ahead of that. It's saying, not only don't do to people, but do for people what you'd love them to do for you. Intervene. One is don't act harmfully. The other is do act for the good of others. That's what Jesus says. I should bring this to an end. Um, let me draw your attention to the fact that, um, just two quick things, there is no contrast between the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus, and this. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you've heard it was said of old, love your neighbour, hate your enemy. The love your neighbour part is from the Old Testament. It is from the law of Moses. The hate your enemy is not. That's the thing that Jesus' contemporaries had added to balance it off. Love your neighbour, hate your enemy. And we know some of the rabbis teaching around Jesus' time would teach that. Uh, Let me just read you from Exodus, uh, the second book of the Bible, um, the laws that uh, Moses brought down from Sinai. Let me read, just, just hear the unenlightened Old Testament. It says this. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, that probably won't happen to you this weekend, okay? But you've got the picture, you live in an agrarian society, you find your enemy's ox just roaming down the street or his donkey. The natural instinct is to go, yeah, you sucker. I'll just, I'll actually shoo it down the road, right? Um, if he cared better for his animals, it wouldn't have happened. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. 
If you found your friend's ox or ox wandering off, what would you instinctively do? You'd be sure to take it back to him. So the same God, the God who sent Jesus, says to the law of Moses, do that. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. I think this is probably the passage Jesus has built his own teaching from because it speaks of enemy and the person who hates you. This is the consistent teaching. It's just much clearer under Jesus. And the thing he says is, the great thing in all this is, uh, if you do this, have a look with me lastly at verse 35. He, He repeats the key thing. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. God will notice that. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Jesus is speaking to people who are committed to him and he understands that perhaps one of the best definitions of what a Christian is, is it's an adopted enemy of God. Someone who was an enemy of God, as Romans 5 clearly says, has been adopted. And the thing is, be like God. What does God do? Who does he love, we're told in this passage? He loves the ungrateful and the wicked. And the call is to become like God, to become like Jesus who dies for his enemies. And in the end, he kills his enemies with kindness. Now, that's the call here of Jesus. Now, I'll leave it there so we've got some time for questions. All right. If you do have any questions, the number is up on the screen. You can SMS those in to me right now. Or if you did write down your question, uh, just put up your arm and uh, Mark will come over and pick those up for you. And, uh, but we'll go ahead and get started because we have a few questions already yeah, for you. Um, the first one is, you said love is action rather than feelings, but isn't, isn't it fake if you're not doing things from the heart or out of just mere obligation? Good question. Isn't it? When the Bible attacks fakeness, it's talking about when you pretend to be praying to God, but you're actually trying to get the applause of men. That's the fakeness the Bible opposes, when you do something to pretend to be something you're not in order to get the applause of your neighbour. Uh, what Jesus is saying is not that. What the Bible, is, in a sense, is saying here, it doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is what you do. Our society is obsessed. I mean, I actually put a thing up on Facebook, which I do once every... Um, you know, about this ridiculous thing happens after state of origin things. You've got these great big footballers and, and they, they say, how do you feel? History shows they've got nothing worth saying at that point. Oh, mate, I, oh, I can't express it. Oh, it's too, too big for words. That's not their fault. They're not poets, right? It's the idiot interviewers who ask them. You know, they keep doing it and they always go, oh, mate, I can't say it. Oh, right. So it's... Um, uh, it's, it's not about how you feel. It's how you, if I'm drowning, I don't care why you save me. I don't care about your emotional state. I just need someone to save me. And that's what the Bible's saying. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate him. Return his donkey. Right? Work on your feelings later. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, and, but we are obsessed with our feelings. The Bible is more concerned about how you treat people. Um, there's a few questions kind of on the same topic, so if, if I don't get it right, quite right based on it, because I'm trying to summarize a it's few of them. It's your birthday, so we'll forgive you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that. Oh, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> thanks, Ian. Um, does love your enemies mean you never stand up for yourself? Do you go through life just expecting to be abused? 
Yes, I'm not dead yet. Please hit me again. Um, <laughs> yes and no. I think as a Christian you should expect that sometimes you will. Nice guys will come last. Um, but I think it's to look at Jesus. Jesus is not a theoretician here. So he doesn't just say, love your enemy, pray for those who mistreat you, and then not do it. When he's being crucified, as they're putting the nails through his hands, he does exactly what he says here. I don't think he goes, oh, no, I did say, pray for those who mistreat you. So I should set the boys a good example here. He just does what God does. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, being put to death within a month or so of Jesus having risen from the dead, his last words... He says, uh, Lord Jesus, interesting, Lord Jesus, you're not, you're not supposed to pray to anyone but God, but the early Christians knew what was going on. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says, do not hold this sin against them. So, you know, it, it's very practical what Jesus is saying. And what was the question again? It's just in relation, I'm sorry, I went on to the next one. Um, it was just a t- are, we, are we supposed to just then continue yeah, to be abused? So, but it's interesting to look at Jesus. He's hardly a guy who just takes meaningless, pointless abuse. So in, his, in his trial at one stage, it's in Matthew's Gospel, one of the, he answers a question and he gets slapped by one of the soldiers. And he turns to him and says, um, you know, I, I spoke the truth, for, for what reason do you slap me? And if I've spoken the truth, you shouldn't slap me. So that's interesting. He actually rebukes the soldier in his trial for, for behaving inappropriately. I don't think there's any indication that Jesus is some roll-over-me doormat. But there will be times you will seem like that. Because when he says, Jesus, when you, says, when you get slapped across the cheek, turn the other cheek. So that's an insult, not an act of violence. Right? It's, it's not a punch in the face, it's a slap. Uh, in the Middle East then and now, and even in our culture up until recently, um, particularly women, you'd see them in the movies when some man would act inappropriately, he'd slap, oh, you cad. And, um, but we don't tend to, but it's an insult. You slap someone and Jesus is saying, rather than get ready to do a big slap back, Turn the other cheek. Let him hit you with the backhand as well, which is the double insult. He's saying, don't get, don't play in the, you know, returning insult to insult. It nearly kills you. And you'll often have to confess, God, I just reacted instinctively and got violent back and cursed back in, in return. But you look at Jesus' own life and he's, he's happy to stand up for the truth. At times when he is receiving an, an illegal process, he's happy to remind people of the process. Um, he refuses to be bullied to say anything at his trial. He goes silent when he wants to and speaks quite firmly. So I don't think it means being a coward. In fact, often enough in a workplace, it'll be the Christian who'll stand up and speak because they can afford to lose their job and their house because they actually know there's more going on than just the accumulation of wealth and security. So it's, it's, but it's, it's, the, it's the gentleness of heart that says, you may be a psychopath boss, You may be the member of the family who's stealing all the inheritance that was supposed to come to all of us. You may be the one who's torn up the will of my parents, etc., as I've seen in various families. But I'm going to keep seeking to love you, even as we go to court on it. I'm going to seek to do do you good uh, in this place. It's complicated. Well, and and that's interesting. It goes right into the next question, actually. Um, This talks about how your neighbors, which we'll be talking about next week, goes into also can be your enemies. Um, We have bad neighbors. Um, We try to love them, but it's really hard. They're breaking the law in what they haven't complied with longstanding legal obligations, and so we're taking legal action. Mm. Should we turn the other cheek so much that we don't take legal action and see that they do right in the legal thing? Boy, these are complicated. And sadly, not as uncommon as you'd like. I was chatting with someone earlier this week. 
in a really classy part of Sydney who's got the most, sounds like the most disgraceful neighbours. Other people in the street have moved out. They've sold up because of these people. Um, and he's done everything he can. No, I think there, we, we have a legal system for a reason. And it's interesting, in, if, if, you had, if you had time, if you look at Romans 12, which I've, there's a couple of verses from at the bottom, Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says exactly what Jesus is saying here. Do not repay evil for evil. If you see your enemy hungry, feed him. If you see your enemy thirsty, give them water. Right? And so it's exactly what Jesus is saying here, the Apostle Paul. That's in Romans 12, the end of Romans 12. If you read into Romans 13, and he says, that's right, he says in Romans 12, do not avenge yourself. Now, do not seek justice in that way, personally. Right? Leave room for the justice of God. Romans 13 is where one of the clearest passages where the Bible speaks about the place of government. By which in those days it includes what we have in our day, police, courts and, and politicians and rulers. It's that whole conglomerate that was sort of tied together in the Roman Empire. And he says, the government has a sword from God and it is an avenger. I'm not to take personal vengeance against my neighbour, but it's completely appropriate for, my, for, for the government to step in and to, to do its thing. So the Bible is not against... In fact, it's very pro the place of government and the appropriate use of some of those services. So that, that's where the avenging is supposed to happen. But you'll have opportunities to, to, with that person, perhaps, to be kind. So just briefly, one of the clearest examples I had, which Christianity 101, I was teaching at this school, almost all the staff were magnificent. There was one or two I wouldn't have employed. I'm pretty sure the headmaster wouldn't have employed if he hadn't a second chance. But um, they'd gone to sleep on the post. And one particular guy, he was nasty, he was a gossip, he was called by his friends the, silent, the smiling assassin, and um, he would, I won't bore you, he was a naughty boy, um, although older than me. And he was the guy I would have most liked to hear that he'd resigned or, you know, been called to higher service or something like that. But um, anyway, one night, one o'clock in the morning, I'm working on the report cards, you know, nine o'clock deadline, we're writing these things. And this guy made a terrible mistake. Uh, it was a stupid mistake and it was a terrible mistake and I was the only one who knew and I was the only one who could help. Now, part of me wanted to say, suffer, sucker. <laughs> Be sure your sins will find you out, you lazy old coot. But I, he, was my, he was my enemy. Well, not a dangerous enemy and he did hate me. Um, but I knew I had to help him. I had to treat him as if he was my friend. If he was my best mate who'd made a similar mistake... It would have been, there would have been no choice about it. But that's what it means to love your enemy. Um, Russell had an experience, which we probably don't have time to share, I'm, you're in charge of the clock, where there was a guy he worked with who gave him a hard time and Russell loved him and they became friends. Didn't make a scrap of difference with the smiling assassin. Right? He, he, I don't think he even thanked me at the end of it, even though it cost me a few hours. But, and I'm not saying that to boast. It's not boasting. That's Christianity 101. Right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And you'll be like God, because that's what God's like to me. And Jesus is not asking you to do it and then earn God's approval. He's saying, that's how God loves you. He loves the wicked and the ungrateful, me. Right? And he says, learn to become God-like. It's, and it actually, you find a remarkable harmony. That's actually how you're made to live. All right. Well, I think That's we're it. out of time. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, there were a few questions and a few things you wanted commented on. Um, definitely, we'll probably either, either get to those next week yeah, or we um, hopefully uh, uh, we'll be able to look at okay. them or even come up and talk to you in the afternoons. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Sure. Here we've got one more. A couple of, yeah. Hopefully. 
Maybe not. Here we go. Well, I guess we'll, we'll just skip over that. You can turn that off there, Peter. With all the, turn that off if you want to turn that off. All right. Well, I just want to draw, draw your attention to two things on the table for you. Um, one is coming up in July. We have a forum. We're going to go back to uh, similar to what we did last year. is actually called the Secret Hollywood. This year we're going to be doing the forum that goes to the flicks with all of the different stories of Noah, Son of God, and also the upcoming Exodus film that's going to be coming out at the end of the year by Ridley Scott. Um, a lot of people have a lot of questions about Hollywood's take on the Bible. And uh, we've got some of the some great um, people from the industry who are really going to be able to speak into that. And we're going to have a forum, just have some fun with it, but also look at kind of the biblical application. One of, we had a Son of God event here recently where one of the uh, men from Empire Magazine, Dave Brown, was there. Um, not from a Christian background, but he, was, he made the comment, he said, you know, the Bible is a great story. Why they don't do more films based on the Bible is beyond me. He said, but the only thing is, the challenge is the minute the screenwriter gets a hold of it, they're already dead in the water because everybody's going to be unhappy with it, you know. And so definitely come along to this forum, and then we have some great talks from Al Stewart, Adrian Drayton, and Mark Hadley, and Ben McKechn coming up. Um, you can look at the titles there, and we encourage you to come along throughout the month of July. Um, and also on the table, if you ever have the question or want to ask the question, where's the fusion of Christianity and science or God in science, this guy is worth coming to see. And if you've ever heard of or heard John Lennox, you know that what I mean. It's worthwhile coming along. At the end of August, on the 25th of August, um, we're going to be having John Lennox speaking here in Sydney. And um, you can see also he's going to be tra uh, traveling around Australia. And um, I can't tell you how what a good value this is and definitely worthwhile coming along. So uh, take that with you, and, and I encourage you to come along in August to Cosmic Chemistry, do science and God mix. All right, well, next week we'll be looking at the topic of love your neighbor and looking at who is my neighbor. And so uh, hopefully we'll see you all again next week. Thank you again today, Ian. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.